The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Thank you all for joining us today. My name is Anthony Sis, and you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you for joining Sharon and me on another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Sharon, how are you doing today? Today is a good day. I'm feeling good. I'm here. We've got some good conversations waiting for everyone to hear. So let's get it going. All right. Well, thank you for sharing how you're doing today. Sharon, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about what's to come in today's episode? Well, today we're actually going to do a continuation of the episode that we had two weeks ago. And uh, we, you and I, Anthony, we started talking about hair and the New York state law that was passed about um, not being able to discriminate against a person based on their hair. And with that said, let's go take a moment to introduce our guest. But uh, first, I'm going to tell you that we have a new segment that's called More of What's Going On. When Anthony and I spoke last, uh, last episode, it was called What's Going On. And because now we're continuing the conversation, we're going to call it more of What's Going On. So with that, I'd like to introduce Trisica Monroe. Trisica is our guest on today's podcast, More of What's Going On. And Trisica, if you'll take a moment to let us know who you are and what wonderful insights you're going to bring to the podcast today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that introduction. So my name is Trisica Monroe. I'm the Program Manager for Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and LGBT Studies, two small academic programs in the College of Arts and Sciences. Thank you, Trisica. All right. Before we get started... We always like to start each podcast episode with a question of the day. And so I get the opportunity to ask today's question, which for all of us to answer, the question is, when it comes to inclusion, how do you foster an environment where people who come from different backgrounds know you value their ideas? So say that again, please. Yeah. So when it comes to inclusion, how do you foster an environment where people who come from different backgrounds know you value their ideas. Okay. Do you want to go for um do you want to take Why a chance? Why don't you take it away first, Sharon? <laughs> well, I went to a place that's personal, not necessarily relating to Cornell University. So um, what I do, because in my personal life, I do have lots of people from different environments and different backgrounds and cultures, I get incredibly curious. I want to know everything. And I'm always looking for ways to uh, correlate and find parallels between my own background, my own history, my own heritage, and allow the person to share who they are. So that's what I do. And um, of course, I do that at at work as well. But um, I find more opportunities to do that uh, in my personal life. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. And it resonates for me as well. I think it's really important. You can foster an environment, an inclusive environment, if you communicate to people that you care about what their thoughts and opinions are and what we're doing. So if someone joins an organization and they're brand new and you introduce them to everyone, and then you say, well, what do you think about our strategy for this? Did you perhaps do it in a different way at your previous organization? Things like that, I think, signals to someone that how they think and feel matters and is welcomed in that space. So when it comes to inclusion, I foster an environment of... um, 
letting people know that they're included and their ideas are welcome because I get very curious. I, I want to hear everything about them. So what I do is ask questions. I ask questions with the intention of, intention of learning more about the individual, and I also um, try to find parallels to my own experience so that I can find ways where I can connect with them on a person-to-person level. So I ask a lot of questions, I find parallels, and I um, try to use the information I learn in a constructive way. That's what I do. That makes sense. And I think I would second that too, Sharon, because I do the same thing. And I think um, and I think it's good practice too to let someone know that they are welcome to share their ideas and that they're included by asking them for their feedback, by asking them, does this make sense? How did you do, how would you do it? Do you have a different idea? Um, and bringing people into and just creating a collaborative space where people, where there's camaraderie, where there's rapport and where there's trust. Oh, yeah. Um, trust and so folks lot. feel like they can share their ideas and that it's it's the space. It's a space where sharing is welcome. Right. Right. Yeah. That's great. And Anthony, thanks for that great question. How about you try to answer it? <laughs> yeah, I would just I would just add to the piece, definitely adding with trust and how trust is important and how you essentially foster trust with new employees or just with new members that you're working with who come from different backgrounds. And so for me, it's about getting to know the person individually, kind of on a one-on-one level, because I think oftentimes with ideas and feedback, a lot of people tend to be a little bit shy to share some of those ideas in a larger group setting. So I think hopefully establishing that trust individually with the person to then for them to then be able to feel comfortable sharing that information with a larger group or like in a team meeting or in a staff meeting, I think that's one way in which I try to foster inclusion is just getting to know the person individually and from a personal but also a professional workplace perspective. Thank you. That was a great question. And um, for our listeners out there, every every episode we try to start with a new question. And just so you know, only one of us know what the question is. So it's a surprise to the person who has to answer. So just letting you know that if you are feeling brave and you want to get on the show, be prepared to answer the question of the day. Let's see more of what's going on. Well, I was reflecting back on my comments from the last episode of our podcast, and it reminded me of an episode of Living Single. Do you remember that TV show? Was it yes. the 80s or 90s? Yeah, the, 90s. the 90s. It was the 90s. Yeah, 90s. The, um, the four single women living together in a house, and um, they had a handyman who worked in their building or in their apartment, and there was a friend of the a friend of the girls, and his name was Kyle. I believe his name was Kyle Barker. And um, anybody out there, if you, if I'm remembering this improperly, definitely feel free to leave comments and correct me on that. But there was an episode of Living Single where Kyle Barker was contemplating whether or not he should cut his hair to look more like what his profession Uh, dictated he should look like. So that was a great episode. So with that said, I'm just going to uh, throw a little question at our guest here, Jessica. I'm going to put you on the spot. (laughs) So let's let's hear about um, what are your thoughts on hair and presentation of self and who polices hair and things like that. And let's see how we can um, see what that feels like in a professional environment. Professional being in air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sharon. I think 
a lot of the times black girls, black boys, people of color, our, our hair and our bodies are often heavily policed by the dominant culture, which values European aesthetics mm-hmm. and presentations. Um, so that's definitely true. Um, and I think that very often what gets missed is that there's like a there's a basic dignity and respect component that I, I think sometimes get gets missed, wherein it's like, I am an autonomous human being, and so I get to control what I look like and how I present, right, right. and what is professional based on my phenotypic traits mm-hmm. varies from someone else who has different um, phenotypic presentation, right. um, and that's its own thing. But at the same time, this sense that for black people, we can't be professional just... Um, as a starting point, like blackness is not professional to begin Ooh. with. Wow. She's, she's going deep. She's going deep. <laughs> she's going way in there. That's so please continue. Sorry. And so I think it often starts from that standpoint where it's like the the white gaze looks at black people and, sa- and says, you're not professional. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sort of like, I'm not seeing you as a human being who has like control over your body and your presentation. And whether you wear a suit in this environment can look lots of different ways. But then when it comes to something like grooming practices or like your your amount of facial hair and and how you wear your hair just as a matter of keeping your hair protected, um, your personal style and things like that, things get really wild very quickly, I think, very often. (laughs) Yes, they do. Um, And there's almost this like omnipresent like desire to control blackness at all points like it's this wild thing that must be contained like the minute a black person pops up it's like okay (laughs) there is a rupture here blackness has entered and it must be contained and it must be squashed well it must be watched yeah and it must be diminished monitored diminished monitored exactly and just like shoved down as small as it possibly can because it's too loud, too much, too big, too whatever. And this shows up a lot in hair. So, for example, one of my faculty, uh, we had a faculty lunch not too long ago um, with uh, Professor DeHanza Rogers in PMA where she showed some clips of her Black Girlhood um, project. Just to clarify, what does PMA stand for again? Performing and Media Arts. It's a department in the College of Arts and Sciences. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Shameless plug, but we'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) And so she showed some clips of her Black Girlhood project. And that's one of the things she brought up in her project is that there's this school to prison pipeline for black for black girls in particular. And one of the dimensions that gets black girls in particular in trouble is their hair. And so there are all these alarming stories we hear about in the news all the time about uh, a teacher snatching the braids out of a student, like literally yanking them out of a student's hair or and another educator cutting someone's cutting someone's braids and saying, what are you going to go home and tell your mama? Um, and just like really gruesome, awful things like that. Mm-hmm. Or folks going to interviews and they might have locks and people saying, well, you know, that doesn't really fit our aesthetic and we don't think locks are professional or what have you. And so there, you can look out there and there are all these stories, each one more alarming than the next, um, than the other, about example after example after example of this hyper-policing of black people, of this hyper-policing of, not even hyper-policing, just policing in general of what black people look like, how black people show up in spaces. And it, it's, it's, 
conveying the message on the one hand that you don't get to determine what you look like because you're not an autonomous. We don't recognize you as a human being who can like have style and have a presentation that you want to be proud of and that it's part of your cultural heritage. And then there's the other thing where it's like the black body is a locus of control for the white dominant society. And so it's this interesting configuration that comes together and then manifests around hair as well. And then when you told me about this topic, I also thought about how historically this control has manifested. And I thought immediately about the Tion laws in Louisiana, in New mm-hmm. Orleans, when um, women, who, black women who were mixed and were considered like becoming too light skinned and were competing with white women um, for male attention. And I think it was the governor at the time, the Spanish governor at the time, um, came up with the Tion laws to like cover their hair. And it was supposed to be a marker. Um, a, d- a marker of diminishment and like lower status, but then <laughs> these women were fabulous and amazing with it, and they had all of these really um, beautiful and lavish ways of tying their hair, right, and then that created is. other problems. <laughs> it seems like so many of the issues that come out of policing, it really at the core of it all, it's just about fear. Yeah, it's just about fear. People always feeling as though I cannot allow you to express yourself fully because I have my own set of fears that you are going to whatever, fill in the blank, whether it is take my job, whether it is, you know, take take away some authority from me, whether you are going to overshadow me mm-hmm. or something like that. All of that comes right back down to fear. And that that is what I find is so um, hard to understand. Like, why why does so much fear just exist for no reason? I mean, if you just live and let people live and be the best person they can be, you will see that you will be able to do better if you allow those around you to do their best as well. What do you think about that? I mean, I think for me, what I ultimately have been hearing all of this is the internal messages that black people, that other people from other other marginalized communities get as a response to those types of laws, right? That they're not good enough, that they don't present good enough, that they're, you know, in Spanish, there's this phrase, belo malo, right? Among black Spanish-speaking folks. And that's essentially translates to bad hair. Mm-hmm. Why is it bad hair? Because that's the internal message that we've been taught, historically speaking, through laws and through our social interactions with people of other races when we hear about, you know, what the dominant culture values and then how does that affect us internally in terms of our own self-image too, as people of color, as, you know, black people have internalized that. And so it made me think a little bit, I know you talked briefly about kind of the connections with race and gender, particularly when it comes to blackness and things like that. Uh, Is there kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about that, kind of the distinction or the intersection rather with race and gender when it comes to hair in the workplace? Oh, absolutely. And I think um, it gets, so black men and, uh, and black women, like, however you present in the world um, when you're black it's it, it comes at you regardless because black men are subject to the same kind of pressures to present in a certain way that fits a certain like dominant aesthetic and then black women have the double bind too of presenting in a very because everything about the black woman isn't classified as traditionally feminine to begin with in the stereotypical imagination of black women. So black women have then this this double bind where it's like we're often seen as aggressive and um, angry and all this other stuff. Right. And then t- 
to add that to like hair presentation and and the racism around what our hair looks like is another <laughs> adds another layer uh to the whole mix i think um and so very often and so sometimes too uh the pressures for black women is often to have very straight so-called relaxed hair relaxed relaxed <laughs> <laughs> like why is there's it nothing relaxed, relaxed right. about it but yeah. just to um, add a little <laughs> clarification to our listeners out there relaxed hair is hair our natural black hair that has ha- been chemically treated to make it stay straight yes. even after and in between washes mm-hmm. so that our natural kink our natural curl our natural texture is not so quote unquote unruly and it becomes relaxed by means of using a relaxer. So that's basically a perm that straightens our hair. And I believe for um, white people, maybe non-whites as well, but when they use the term a perm, they're adding texture, they're adding curl to it. And when black people say they're getting a perm, they're straightening their hair by chemical means. We're removing texture. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, so there's that that there's that pressure to have very straight hair, very long hair, and there's this uh, miscon- misconception that natural, uh, curly, kinky, coily, whatever you want to call it, hair um, isn't one isn't long, isn't professional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often deemed as being unkempt, um, and things like that. And so, and then, and then that adds that gets even deeper in certain professions where uh, the 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 style presentation is often very conservative. So you're thinking like suits, ties, and so there are some black women who feel a pressure to conform to that standard by wearing their hair very straight. Um, in that kind of environment and feel that an afro or locks um, is contrary to that kind of a presentation. I have to confess that, um, like I said in our last episode, that although my hair was growing in its natural state for quite a few years, I was very dependent on wigs. So if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see years back that um, I had wigs, all different styles and colors and things like that, because once again, that to me is is another a perfect example of code switching. Mm-hmm. When I am in a certain setting, I want to present a certain way. So therefore, I'm going to keep my straight black hair wig on. And then when I'm no longer in that setting, I'm um, weekend or evenings, and I want to do something that's very outside of my professional world, I would wear my hair naturally, whether it's in braids, plaits, twists, coils, what have you. And um, and. Unfortunately, it worked for a long time until I just got tired of it. I really got tired of it. And like I said, I was owning myself. So I decided to do what I wanted to do with my hair. I made decisions and I went through with it. I followed through with it. So, yeah, that that whole presenting one way and then in another way, it 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 totally speaks to the code shifting mm-hmm. that people do, code switching. Yeah, absolutely. That totally makes sense. For me, I abandoned perms and relaxers in college because I never liked how I looked with straight hair. And then when I was in college, I was like, there's nothing actually straight about me. So I might as well not have straight (laughs) hair either. So I abandoned, I completely abandoned straight hair and I never went back. And so as a professional person, I've never presented with what I would call a European affirming look. So I've never worn my hair straight. Um, like I just I just can't do it. It's like I want nothing to do with straight hair 
at all at any point. So I've always worn braids or curly or, or froey um, extensions or something like that when I want to protect my natural hair. And so I've never I've never had that um, bind for me in a professional setting where I felt that I needed to fit in in a certain way because and this is where my own queer identity comes in because I felt I'm going to show up and be different no matter what. No matter what. So you're going to know. <laughs> so right. you're going to know upfront what you're getting in an interview. And so I, I never want because I, I also made the choice and it might be because I'm a millennial, uh, an older millennial. But I made the choice very early on that if someone didn't want to work with me, I would prefer that. Than thinking, than them thinking that I was a different kind of person than I actually was, and so it was very important to me. So when I actually when I do interviews, I show up and I go, "I'm queer," just so you know. Same. So if there's anyone who has a problem <laughs> with that, yeah. we can we can not work together, and it's cool because yeah. I want to know that right away. So I I tend to like come up front with who I am immediately in my hair. And how I dress is part of that. So people know what they're getting with me. And then if you hire me, it's like, you know what you were getting with me. Because there were no, there was nothing to discover. So there is a meme out there. It's a photo <laughs> of this. Um, I, I feel like it's the same woman. One with bone straight hair in a traditional like Cleopatra t- <laughs> style bob. Yes. And then side by side, it's the same woman. And she has this lovely Angela Davis afro. <laughs> yes. And um, the caption for the straight hair, it says, me at the interview. And then <laughs> the afro, uh, it says, fitting. me after I get the job. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely telling because yes. just exactly what you just t- um, touched on about how I present in the interview. For you, you have made the choice to be who you are at every phase of your employment, which is so empowering for you. But there are people who have to play the game. You know, I've heard someone say you have to... um, fit in until you get in or something along yes, those lines. Yes, yes, yes. And it, it, it is legitimately a game. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. How we present ourselves becomes a type of game. At what point can I wear a rainbow belt to go mm-hmm. with my outfit? At mm-hmm. what point do I put my earrings in if I'm a man and I'm in a very conservative place and I don't and it doesn't seem like men should be wearing earrings in this environment. At what point do I do that? At what point do I wear something that may show off my tattoo on my arm? You know, and questions like that. So it, it, it's, a real, it's a really good game about how much of myself am I going to put out there? When do I feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable or, mm-hmm. or to be open to let people see who I am? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it can be really scary. And I show up how I show up regardless, but I have gotten interesting pushback in some corners of the world um, of the university. Let's hear about that, those moments of pushback. Yeah, and it. So I have gotten uh, some pushback from more conservative. I once worked in a pretty conservative um, unit, and it was definitely a the type of place where you wore full business either a full business look or like business casual every single day. There was no casual Fridays at all ever. Um, and I did get some, some pushback about interpersonally about my natural hair, number one, because, um, when I am not wearing braids, my hair is an Afro and I style it in all sorts of different ways and I wear twists or something like that. 
Um, and then, so there's that. And then there's also in that setting, it was communicated to me by other black folks, interestingly enough. Oh, um, okay. Yes. <laughs> by other black folks, by other black women that head wraps that black women sometimes wear very uh, stylistically, the cool ones with the oh, knots. Oh, I know exactly what Love they Love them. Um, that those weren't appropriate for that setting, um, no matter how cute or <laughs> very well tied or neat they were. Um, that uh, certain types of earrings were, were not appropriate. So it was all a very, the look that uh, those students bought into was very much one where it's like, if you're going to wear jewelry, it's going to be pearls and studs and heels and your hair needed to be very straight, like pin straight. And like, it was, it was all a kind of Stepford business kind of situation. Um, it was very interesting. It sounds really, really restricting. Yeah. So if you can't bring yourself to work in your authenticity, then how can you do authentic work. Yeah, exactly. If only half of you gets to show up. Well, and then what is that teaching the students? Yeah. Alternatively, mm-hmm. too, especially if they're, I'm sure there are students from other countries, from mm-hmm. other backgrounds. So alternatively, going back to like the internal messaging of what that policing of like hairstyles is really about, what that ultimately tells people in order to succeed, in order to thrive, you have to fit a certain mold. And I yeah. think that's so detrimental. Yeah, it is detrimental, but there's an also an interesting thing to that because those students that were busy policing that kind of presentation, it was almost like they were doing this invisible kind of dance that no one else was actually participating in. So they were busy trying to like maintain a certain presentation and like checking out the other black folks and making sure like are you ascribing to this dominant presentation that we think is actually supposed to be playing out here when actually no one else cared. Oh, Oh. that's really good. (laughs) You know, it's so good you said that because um, that clip that I referred to earlier from Living Single, when Kyle was thinking about cutting his hair and he did a presentation to the seniors who are white men, they were like, okay. And so the white men were like, well, why is this an issue? Who was telling you that this wasn't okay? And as it turns out, it was the black person in the room (laughs) who was giving him guidance about what is acceptable and is not acceptable, most likely based on his own experience. But um, it's a really interesting clip. It's very telling. And considering that this was done in the 90s, here we are still talking about it today. Well, and I think a large part of it is because it's controlled externally through mm-hmm. these other forces, through these mm-hmm. other systems, right, yeah. that tell us that we're not good enough, that black people aren't good enough because of their hair presentation and things like that. You know, so it's it's external, but in the workplace, you know, there there are certain things that I think we can foster to make sure and reaffirm that people can show up in their authentic selves through their hair styles and expressions and things like that. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for bringing all that wonderful information. And and once again, we're not answering, we're not solving world problems. We are just (laughs) having really good conversations. And hopefully we're getting our listeners out there. We're getting you listeners to think, to ask questions, and to engage in your own robust conversations on all kinds of topics and particularly more of what's going on. (laughs) Thank you for having me. You're so, so welcome. Thank you for participating. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. And if you like this episode, please leave us a comment and like us on SoundCloud to let people know about the podcast. You can also send us email at what, Anthony? 
ie-academy at cornell.edu. Fantastic. And if you, follow, if you or a fellow colleague would like to be interviewed on an upcoming episode, please email us at ie-academy at cornell.edu. My name is Sharon Brown. My name is Anthony Sis. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. And thank you to our guest, Trisica Monroe. Yay. Yay. And of course, our wonderful sound person. Bert. Bert. Sound engineer. <laughs> thank you Bert so much. Bert Odom Reed, thank you so much. From Cornell Broadcast Studio for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Yeah.